Well, we are continuing this week in our series called The Red Letters, focusing on the teachings and sayings of Jesus. Not all of them necessarily, but, but as many as we can get our hands on over the next few weeks. Um, this week, I'd like to focus specifically on one kind of declaration that Jesus makes about himself in John chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, please turn or tap to John chapter 8. We're going to begin reading in verse 12. And to kind of set up the background, what's going on here, there is a festival going on in Jerusalem in the temple at the time. And that's where this, this, this scripture takes place in, is in the middle of this festival. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? And what happens in the beginning of John 8, Jesus is teaching. This is one of the few Jewish festivals, by the way, that is open to non-Jews. So you'd have Gentiles and foreigners. Everybody was allowed to participate and observe this festival. And you find Jesus at the beginning of John 8. It says that, that all of the people gathered around him. So I don't know what all means. Maybe it was all the people in the temple court. But Jesus is surrounded, begins teaching when the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders, bring in a woman before him who had been caught in the act of adultery. And the word says that they were trying to test Jesus. And they said, well, Moses in the law commands that such a woman, such a violator, such a sinner should be stoned to death. But what do you say? And he said, well, okay, which of you, whichever of you is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. As the story goes, he knelt down on the ground and began to write on the ground until one by one from the oldest to the youngest, eventually they all left. And it was just Jesus left alone with the woman. And he said, does no one condemn you? She says, no one. He says, well, then never do, neither do I condemn you, but go now and leave your life of sin. Because whenever we encounter Jesus, we don't leave the same, right? And so she leaves, and the very next line is this, John 8, verse 12. It says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of of life. If you're taking notes, you might want to write down the words light, life, word, Jesus. Those would kind of be the four words that guide where we go this morning. I'm kind of an artist. <laughs> Not that I'm necessarily good, that great at anything, um, but I have the artist temperament. I've got kind of the artist personality, and I, I got all the feels. I'm able to feel really high highs and really low lows, and sometimes I cry because the sunset is so beautiful I can't even imagine, and sometimes I cry because it's Tuesday. (laughs) But for whatever reason that God has has created me this way, um, I think along with that comes an ability to maybe communicate or, or portray something, to illustrate something in a little different way, and so this morning... Are you up for something a little different? <laughs> if, this is your, if this is your first time visiting here, um, this isn't always how it's going to be, I promise. Um, Tim Keller, I finished a class recently, and he wrote a book called Preaching. And in it, he talks about this idea of preaching to the heart or preaching to our affections. And he suggests that preaching should not aim to merely make an, or that, that preaching should aim to make an impression on the listener. And that impression sometimes is more important than information takeaways. So not that you won't have any nuggets or information takeaways at the end of this, but my hope is by the time we get to the end of this morning that there would be more of an impression that is left on you as we leave. Go ahead and put that spiral up, Tori. This is kind of how I see 
uh, this morning's message kind of going. <laughs> I gave you the four words, and we're going to circle around them a few times, right? Starting with John 8, 12 in the center, Jesus at the center of it all, like we just sang. And hopefully by the time we get to the end, we'll see a little bit bigger picture of what that means in context and what it means for us in application. So, who's ready to dive down the rabbit hole? <laughs> if you're ready and willing, say amen. Amen. All right. Um, you ready? Amen. Let's do it. Clap off. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. There is a light that shines in the darkness. And maybe you're familiar with this account of creation, what happened in the beginning, but did you know that there's another parallel account of creation that also starts in the beginning? And that's found in John chapter 1, and it says this, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. In fact, without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. There's that Word. And that life was the, what? Light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Can I get an amen? <laughs> the word, the word, Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. There is a light that shines in the darkness. There is a light that shines in the darkness. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. The light of the world. The Word became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. What an amazing picture that the God that we serve is not a God who sits somewhere far removed watching, judging, ready to throw a lightning bolt at us for everything we do wrong. No, he is a God who enters into the story with us. He is a God who dwells among his people, Emmanuel. And the word is Jesus. But did you know the incarnation was not the first time that God made his dwelling among his people? We see as he walked with Adam in the garden. He walked with Enoch. And then we read in Exodus 25, after Moses has led the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt, God begins to give instruction to him. And he says, hey, Moses, let's pool together the resources. He's like, and now I got something for your people to do. And he says in verse 8, have them make a sanctuary for me. And I will, what? Dwell among them. This is how God has always been. And isn't this amazing when you look at this? He's saying, hey, Moses, tell them to go and prepare a place for me. Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open, that I will come in. This is marriage talk. Dr. Dan talked last week about the bridegroom returning for the bride. In John 14, 3, Jesus says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. God is not just one who is a cohabitor with his people. He's a God of covenant, God of relationship, even from the beginning. And so they began to set about building this dwelling place, this residence for God, and the word for it, was tabernacle and it probably looks something like this this is a painting but you can see how in the desert there's the encampment of the Israelite homes along the outside there was there was this kind of curtain set up around the perimeter uh, which encompassed what was called the court and as you enter into the tabernacle again this is to be the dwelling place of God remember as you enter into the tabernacle you pass first the altar where the sacrifices were made you pass through the laver, which was for the priests to wash their hands and their feet before entering into the holy place. Inside the holy place, there was some furniture. Go ahead to that next slide, Tori. Inside the, the holy place, there was a lampstand. And across from it was, was a table of showbread, which were 12 identical loaves of bread that were one for each tribe of Israel. There was the incense of altar and then in the holy of holies, the most holy place where only the high priest could go in once a year was the Ark of the Covenant upon which the mercy seat was the, the presence, the dwelling presence of God. But since we're talking about light, I want to focus for a moment on the light. <laughs> now, in Exodus 25, verse 31, we get some instruction says make a lampstand of pure gold I gotta admit I didn't have the budget for that so this one is made out of wood and it's covered in about 50 cents worth of gold foil <laughs> but uh also I'm lighting these little lamps I made in mason jars they probably didn't have mason jars on the original tabernacle either that's probably in the hipster temple down the street and instead of the uh, table of showbread they probably had 12 slices of avocado toast. <laughs> but God gave specific instruction. 
for this lampstand made of solid gold, how it was to be hammered out and to have shapes hammered into it, flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms. What do you think of when you read those kind of words? Do you think of like a plant, some kind of foliage, a bush, perhaps? In verse 32, he says that six branches should come out of the main uh, center shaft of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. Because seven is the word for perfection or completeness in Scripture. And then God gives a weird instruction after he says, okay, and then make some accessories, a snuffer and whatnot to maintain the wicks and this and that. And then he says in verse 40, he says, see that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Saying, Moses, you've seen this somewhere before. Where have you seen something that looks like a bush where the top is burning? Mount Horeb. In Exodus chapter 3, remember Moses is tending his sheep and he sees a bush that is burning, that is lit on fire but is not consumed. I don't know for sure that this is the kind of bush it was, but go ahead and put that slide up, Tori. This is a type of salvia plant that grows predominantly in that area. It's very, um, it's in the mint family, so it's very rich in essential oils, had a lot of medicinal properties, right? It was used a lot for healing. In fact, some Jews even called, referred to this plant as the tree of life because of the healing properties that it had. And they grew almost two-dimensionally out of the center stalk and usually had three or four branches um, coming out of either side. At full maturity, they would be between two and three feet tall. And in modern times, they refer to this as the menorah plant. <laughs> menorah just being the Hebrew word for lamp, often referring to the lamp, the divine light that resided in the temple. This was the symbol of, of universal enlightenment for the Jewish people. And the lamps that were placed on it, guess what those are made out of? I don't know what they're made out of, it was gold, but what was in them, what burned was olive oil. Verse 37, then make it seven lamps and set them up on it so that they light the space in front of it. What was in front of it in the holy place? Let's go to that diagram. What is a cross from the candlestick in the holy place? The table of showbread, right? And in the new covenant, in the new covenant, the lampstand represents the Holy Spirit because the tabernacle, the temple in the new covenant is what? It's us. We are the dwelling place of God, but the Holy Spirit resides in us as well. You know what else resides within us is the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit sheds light on the Word of God. I'm reminded of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch that we read about in Acts chapter 8, where the Spirit sent Philip to the specific man who was kind of a magistrate. He was kind of a big deal. He was sitting up in his cart, and, and as he approached him, Philip overheard this guy reading from the book of Isaiah, one of the Jewish prophets. And Philip asked him, sir, do you understand what you're reading? And his response is, no, how can I unless, no, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited him up and Philip stepped up and began to explain him, filled with the Holy Spirit, began to explain the word of the Lord. And now that the Holy Spirit resides in us, he illuminates the word of life within us. Amen. In verse 6, we see that olive oil was used for the lamp. So, who wants to talk about olive oil? Jeff does. That's enough. All I needed was one vote. 
You got it. Um, does anybody like arts and crafts? All right, let's do some arts and crafts. Joel, thank you. You can have a seat. <laughs> are we having fun yet? We are going to make an olive oil lamp. Pulling out my ancient Martha Stewart here. Mason jar. You can use any kind of glass that works. I've got a coat hanger. You can try this at home. It's super easy. By the way, did you know that olive oil is one of the safest fuels, one of the cleanest fuels that you can burn even today? The ancients had this going on. They knew it was up. Kerosene, for example, if a piece of burning wick were to fall off into a kerosene fuel tank, the entire thing would go up. In olive oil, you drop off a piece of burning wick or a flame and it it will extinguish it because olive oil doesn't light on fire. It's a very high, what do you call ignition point or flash point, 550 degrees. Um, So it's safe. It was very abundant in the area. The tree you see behind me there. This is the oldest known living olive tree in the world. It resides in a little town called Bethlehem. Yep, the same Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Um, And so, and you see it four to 5,000 years old, it's possible that Jesus may have had some sort of oil product from this tree. Now take this coat hanger. You probably don't want one that's painted, but if it's galvanized, that's fine. We're not gonna reach the, uh, the temperature for hurting the galvanized. I'm just going to bend a little loop in here, something that we can clench the wick in to hold it in the center of the oil inside the glass. I'm just eyeballing the measurements. You may want to use a ruler, a protractor, a compass if you are otherwise inclined like that. But it's pretty basic. The ingredients that we need for this are olive oil and a wick. (laughs) Something cotton. Pretty easy. It doesn't even have to be extra, 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 extra virgin or whatever you get. Like, I think this bottle was six bucks, but you can imagine if you had trees growing all over the place, like this would be a cheap, cheap fuel source. But you can use plain old, regular, boring, any kind of fuel. Um, And then what I've got here is a dirty old t-shirt from a previous sermon illustration. Instead of doing laundry, I just figure I'll wait and probably use it again at some point. So, Um, (laughs) do you remember this one? Yeah, you remember it. So I'm just going to cut off a piece of this. It happens to be 100% cotton plus whatever else is mixed in with it. Um, so I'm going, to just, I'm going to rig it in here a little bit so that it props the wick up as I put it in the oil. And then I'm going to add just enough oil to cover the base. I want that to reach the bottom. I'm going to put enough oil just to cover the wick and leave about a quarter inch or so uh, left on the top. And then... Fire. I think I sunk it down in the bottom. I did. My bad. Illustration fail. I'll do this one instead. (laughs) So the cotton acts as a wick that draws up the hydrogen and the uh, carbon atoms. The heat draws them up through the wick. And then when they mix with the oxygen, it creates this kind of reaction. And that creates light. That creates heat. This burns clean. You're not going to get any carbon deposits on the ceiling or whatever like you would if you're burning a wax candle. Um, Burns very clean. It's non-toxic. You can burn it indoors all day long. Um, It's just cool. You can make something so easy. They really knew what they were doing. I love it. 
Now, here's the, here's the other thing I love when we talk about the imagery surrounding olive oil. Olive oil was, is used all throughout Scripture as a significant uh, symbol. And everything from food preparation to medicinal purposes to anointing, right? It was used as a symbol of anointing, not only for kings, but it was, an, it was a symbol of God's anointing as well on his people, but how do you get olive oil? What does it come from? <laughs> Olives, which, by the way, can be as high as 50% oil in their mass, which is pretty incredible for a fruit, so it's a pretty efficient source. And then, but they have to be pressed in an olive press, and they have to be crushed. they got to be pressed and crushed in order to get oil. Have you ever felt pressed in your life? 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says that we are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. Do you know why? Because the anointing doesn't come from us. We share in Christ's sufferings, but the anointing comes from God, who we see in Isaiah 53, 5. He was crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds, we are healed. And isn't it amazing that when our filthy rags meet God's anointing, we shed light. Back to the tabernacle. <laughs> so the lampstand stood in the tabernacle, and for generations after, after generation, it was a symbol of universal enlightenment. It was called the divine lamp. And the tabernacle, of course, was a temporary structure that moved around wherever they wandered um, until Solomon came along and rebuilt it as a permanent location. Let's put Solomon's temple up there. You can see some of the similarities in it. Yeah. So you can see that there's a wall around the outer court. Now it's made out of stone. There's a lot more gold involved in the ceilings and, and what all and what not. And now this became the permanent fixed dwelling place of God. If you're uh, not familiar with the Holy Land, let's throw up that picture of modern-day Jerusalem. Now, number one, where you see here, you kind of see number two down here is the Temple Mount. You can see number one, that's the Mount of Olives. And in between was an area called Gethsemane, where there was a garden. You see a little chapel that kind of stands there now as a tribute to that. That's the place. Gethsemane means oil press. And this is the place where Jesus, of course, whispered his famous words, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And this temple was the location of this Feast of Tabernacles that was going on in John chapter 8. And aside from being a festival that it celebrated, not only it was a time of remembering um, God's provision for the Israelites while they were wandering in the desert, but it also was, was a time of looking forward, a celebration of an anticipation of the Messiah that would one day come to make this, to establish this new type of kingdom on earth. And so it was also a festival of lights. And as each day of the festival, starting in day one, going for seven days, they would add more and more torches, more and more lampstands around the temple court until they couldn't hold them anymore, and then there would be torches lit and set around all of the surrounding hills and even in the valleys. 
and this, until it became so bright as um, rabbinical literature would suggest that it could be seen as far away as Galilee, which is 100 miles. That's like trying to look at Phoenix from Christopher Creek or downtown Tucson. It's a long way away, and it's in the middle of this, right? But by the day of the, the, the seventh day, the great Hosanna, the light was so bright it could be seen from 100 miles away. And it was, someone may have said, that's, that's a light unto the world. And it's in the middle of this context that Jesus stands up and he says, no, no, I am the light of the world. And I think I broke my plug. Well, we'll see what happens. <laughs> and you know, if you were to continue reading in John chapter 8, once he said this, this was Messiah language. This was something talking about a Messiah. He was basically dubbing himself this Messiah that they were celebrating, that they were waiting for. But he didn't look like the Messiah that they had waited for. He didn't look like the one that they had waited for over 500 years since Isaiah first talked about the consolation of Israel in chapter 40. And the Pharisees got angry. And after challenging him on his authority, they began to pick up rocks to stone Jesus. And as they picked up the rocks to hurl them, Jesus disappeared into thin air. <laughs> sort of. The actual word there says that Jesus was hidden. It was almost like Harry Potter himself dropped an invisibility cloak over Jesus, right? And, and the picture there is that the Pharisees Jesus had just claimed to be the Messiah, and the Pharisees had not only at <laughs> wonder they put a pulpit up on these things. Well, I guess we'll roll with it. So as John eight continues. We see that, oh, so the Pharisees, they begin to stone Jesus. Poof, he disappears, but it says he was hidden. This cloak was dropped over, and, and the point there is that the Pharisees became blinded, not only to where Jesus was, his location, but to who he was as the Messiah. He was not the Messiah they were looking for. But he was the light that the world needed. Man, it would have been so cool if this thing lit up like I had planned <laughs> you can come back next week I'll try to have it going <laughs> I am the light of the world Jesus uses that phrase light of the world in another place though in a different context and in Matthew chapter 5 he's giving one of his most famous sermons called the Sermon on the Mount in an in Galilee, 100 miles away. And he begins using this Messiah language to paint a picture of this kingdom that is right side up 
and how upside down our kingdom of the earth is that we live in. Because he starts saying things like, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you who face all kinds of crazy things. He's like, because yours is the kingdom. And they're thinking like, ooh, this is something a Messiah would say. Like, oh man, this is it. This is finally coming. I wonder how Jesus is going to pull this off. And then his next word is, you. (laughs) You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A town on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. But wait, Josiah, I thought you just said that Jesus was the light of the world. How can we be the light of the world? It's because we reflect his light. The same way that the moon reflects the sun. The moon can't make any claim to the light that it shines, although where the moon is positioned optimizes the amount of light that it can shed on something. Mom, you feel comfortable sharing stories? Me and mom were hiking this week because that's how we roll. And after she almost blew off the top of the mountain and decided we needed some weights, um, <laughs> she was... <laughs> She shared you know just, those good, strong winds. <laughs> <laughs> she shared just a couple stories from me, or, or with me, from her work. And, and it just popped in my mind yesterday as I was thinking about the different ways that when we center, when Jesus is the center of our lives and every part of our life revolves around him, every part of our life reflects his light, including the workplace. I work in a primary care physician's office, a family doctor, family practice doctor, and um, I do the referrals and medical records for this doctor. And so I have an opportunity to get to know patients, especially some who have chronic illnesses. I do a lot of work with them, referring them to to different specialists and that kind of thing. And um, one of the stories I shared with Josiah, these both happened this week, uh, was um, a young woman a 26-year-old mother of a 4-year-old who has uh, anorexia and has um, lost so much weight that she is in danger of dying. And um, she needed a referral to a specific doctor that would put a feeding tube in her so that she could survive. She has had years of counseling. She was sexually abused growing up and has not been successful in working through those issues and coming out on the other side. And so um, I could hear the um, desperation in her voice when she said, I've got to have this, I've got to have it now. And uh, so I, I said, I will do my best to get you in some place. Um, if any of you work in a doctor's office, you know that you don't get in very fast anywhere these days. But I told her that I would do my best, and so I made several calls. I worked on it for a couple of hours for her and um, was able to get her into a place. The next morning, as soon as I woke up, she was on my heart all night. As soon as I woke up in the morning, I really felt God saying, I want you to pray and fast for her, pray and fast for her life, and pray and fast for her deliverance. And so... 
So I have been in a, in a mode of partial fasting and prayer, um, partial fasting and full prayer for this young woman. Um, we did get her in. She was able to get in, and I don't have any other word on it for now, but um, um, I will keep praying because God has laid her on my heart, and he wants her to know his love for her, and he wants to set her free, and he wants to heal her, and anything that I can do to be that conduit between her and Jesus, I want to be that. Then right on the heels of that came a call from a patient of ours who has diabetes and had to have his leg amputated in November. And I've worked with him a lot to get him um, uh, durable medical equipment and um, to see specialists and that sort of thing. And he called uh, just shortly after I talked with this young woman, and he said, he sounded so cheerful. And I said, you sound great. And he said, he said, I got my prosthesis this week. And he said, I'm learning how to walk with it. And he said, he said, who would have ever thought how independent I could feel being able to go to the bathroom by myself after all these months? And I said, you know, I laughed with him and I said, I, I hear you and I'm so happy for you. And he said, I just want to say thank you for being there for me and for helping me with everything and for just being such an encouragement and um, being so cheerful to me all the time. You've really helped me a lot. And that meant a lot, meant a lot to me. And it's these things that seem pretty simple in our day-to-day lives, but that is the reflection of the light of Jesus to our world. And that's how God uses us to bring others to himself and to let them see the truth. Thanks. Thanks, Mama. <laughs> now you see where Josiah gets that teary stuff. Thank you, Mom. I love you. I just want to honor you and call you blessed. We reflect the light of God in every area of our life when Jesus is the center. The reality is this morning, maybe you liked this new experimental format. Maybe you did, but it's totally irrelevant because what's important, what matters The word was brought, and now you have an opportunity to respond. I would just ask a simple question. Is there any area in your life that is not revolving around Jesus as the center? Your finances or your relationships and your workplace, on the road, behind the wheel, (laughs) whatever it is. Is there anywhere in your life that is not reflecting Jesus Maybe this morning this is a whole new concept for you and you're not sure what to make of it, but maybe you resonate with the feeling of those people who would have heard Jesus' words, recognizing that they're living in an upside-down kingdom. They're living in a world that feels like it's prone toward death and decay and depravity and poverty and sickness and insecurity and all these other things. There's disease. Maybe you can resonate with that. And maybe a glimpse of hope falls on you today that if we center our lives on Jesus, even those areas can shed light. And maybe maybe you feel like you're doing pretty good, and maybe it's almost too good to be true <laughs> in your life. But I would just ask you gently, is the Spirit laying anything on your heart, any area in your life that may have just shifted the focus off him?
be it food or drink or job, relationship, you know. Just ask him to reveal it to you. I'm just going to. I'm just going to get back to my finger picking. I'm going to play through this song one more time. Jesus at the center of it all. And I would just encourage you, respond however you need to this morning. The altars are open. They're an incredible place just to do business with God. It's definitely not a walk of shame. (laughs) This is a walk of grace. Just realizing that we're all walking in the grace of God. It's a great place to do some work. So those are open.